mm, the first um, hindrance and the first factor of the meditation which we have already talked about were sloth and torpor and the antidote of the initial application to the meditation subject. And the second one I had already mentioned also at the very beginning as an immediate benefit of meditation, but we'll look at it a little more closely. The second factor of all meditation, whether meditative absorption or not, is the continued application of the mind to the meditation subject continued for a second, a minute, ten minutes, or half an hour, or one hour, whatever the continuation can be. These two are often compared to hitting the gong and the sound of the gong. When you hit the gong, that's the initial, and then the sound that keeps going is the continued application. The continued application to the meditation subject eventually results in being able to find the keyhole and open the door. Now, this continued application to the meditation subject has the ability to change or minimize our skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is a very insidious hindrance. Now, I've already talked about it as the enemy, so to say, of faith and confidence, obviously. If we have skeptical doubt, we don't have any faith, any confidence, any trust. Skeptical doubt, compared by the Buddha to wandering around in the desert without a road map, and without any provisions and of course going around in circles and in the end being overrun by bandits. A skeptical doubt is, has two main causes in our mind. The first one is very often people who are unable to give themselves fully to anything or anyone will retract into or regress into skeptical doubt in order to justify their inability to give themselves. Sounds quite logical, doesn't it? Well, it certainly seems logical to the person who does it. The other reason or the other cause more, it's not a reason, it's a cause for skeptical doubt is the exaggerated belief in one's own views and opinions. And that very often happens to people who have been using their intellect over and over again. Particularly if they have made a good livelihood out of it because in our society today a good intellect is very often what gets the good pay. So both causes are, of course, intrinsically enmeshed because they are the lack of the heart quality. Skeptical doubt rummages around in the mind looking for things that could be wrong. 
instead of looking for the things that could be right. It uh, makes life more difficult, but because the person who does it usually has a good intellect, it seems to that person that he or she is just using the intelligence in order to investigate. But that's not the case. Investigation is highly priced by the Buddha. Skeptical doubt is given the indication of wandering around in the desert without a road map. There's an enormous difference between the two. The uh, skeptical doubt is usually an attitude of, well, that's all very nice, but, and then comes the whole list of buts. And whatever it is that is being explained, there's another but. In other words, the investigation which is being done is strictly on an intellectual basis rather than on an experiential basis. Investigation, introspection, examination is on an experiential basis. And the difference is, of course, like night and day. And one can feel that in oneself if one is a little bit alert to one's own line of inquiry. Am I inquiring because there's some sort of theory that I either want to prove or disprove, usually disprove, of course, because the skeptical doubter sees the negativities rather than the positivities? Or am I actually trying to experience and trying to find out how to do it or whether the experience I had has significance? It's a world of difference between the two. The world of difference which is between the intellectual level of a university education and the experiential level of um, a meditative spiritual pathway. And yet we, of course, are able to intermesh the two and mix them up because our minds are magicians and can do anything. The one who has a great deal of skeptical doubt will not be able to have devotion because the two are contradictory to each other and will find it difficult to actually have a heart connection to what's, what he or she is doing. However, when that sustained or continued application, the term is usually sustained, sustained application takes place, the mind is liable, not guaranteed to, but liable to say, aha, it works. There must be something in it. And a part of the skeptical doubt is reduced or even partially eliminated. And because that takes place, the pathway is more open. So what we need is, we need uh, the... Um, ability to give ourselves to it completely, but we only give ourselves to it completely after we have seen that it works. So, 
always caught up in the same kind of dilemma. We want something, but we won't get it until we've actually done something about it. So here we have the same thing. But because in a controlled environment such as this, concentration is not all that difficult. Because if it were an impossibility, the Buddha certainly wouldn't have taught it. He was the most pragmatic of teachers. And he saw humanity the way it is, not the way it would like to be. So it is possible. So most people can get at it and can experience it. So that skeptical doubt reduces itself automatically. And this is the beauty of the meditative factors that it has the automatic antidote built in. Because without that automatic purification system that we get through the meditation, our own efforts are very often not only futile, but they are so strenuous that one gives up even though one has every willingness to do it, it's too difficult. If we don't have that assistance and support system from the meditation. On the uh, everyday level, the Buddha recommended as an antidote for the skeptical doubt, again, noble friends and noble conversation, learning more about the Dhamma and also having or surrounding oneself with wise and mature people. So not only noble friends, but wise and mature people. Now that is not always so easy to find. And it doesn't necessarily say at all that these wise and mature people are meditators or that uh, they have a certain kind of affiliation. It just says wise and mature. How we can judge that? Therefore, we have to have our own wisdom. So it presupposes that we are also wise and mature because we can only see in another person what we ourselves have already experienced. It's a very interesting phenomenon, most people never think of it. That's why we say, only a Buddha knows the Buddha. If a Buddha walked in here, we wouldn't have a clue. We don't know what it's like to be a Buddha. Wise and mature people don't wear badges. They don't have halos. They don't have anything. They look like everybody else. So we don't have any outer indications. And we only can see in another person what we ourselves know already about ourselves. That's why our surroundings are always our mirror. We always get a mirror image. What we haven't experienced yet is totally foreign to us. So we wouldn't know anything about it. We don't know when a Buddha walks in here. But let an angry person walk in here and we'll know all about it. We've all been angry. We know exactly what it's like. No problem at all. 
And this is why when we see in another person something, we can be quite sure that too we've got. Otherwise we wouldn't know it. Of course it is possible that we used to have it and have overcome it. In that case, we'd never object to it. All that would arise would be compassion. We'd never have any objection to it. The only things that we object to in other people is exactly what we've got ourselves. If we can remember that, it will make it much easier not to react with dislike and distaste, but to react with compassion for oneself and the other person. Our surroundings are our mirror. Whatever we see is a reflection. That's all. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to see it. We reflect ourselves. And that's why to find wise and mature people is not that easy. But we do have an inkling because everybody has some wisdom. We may fall back into ignorance again, but we all have some wisdom. We actually have what are called the six roots. The three roots of evil and the three roots of good, or the three roots of skill and the three roots of unskill, in unskillfulness, whichever way, or wholesome and unwholesome. And the three roots that are unskillful are called greed, hate, and delusion. And the three roots which are skillful are called generosity, love, and wisdom. And we've got all six. And sometimes one side comes out in us and other times the other side. The only sensible thing to do with this human life is to cultivate the three wholesome roots and to try to minimize and eventually eliminate the three unwholesome ones. That's the only sensible thing to do in this life. Everything else is by the way. If that is our endeavor, we will, we will know that that can only be done if we have meditation as a helpmate. So to look for wise and mature people will necessitate all our own wisdom. But since we have some of that, we should be able to do that. And here again you can see how important the Buddha thought it is with what kind of people we associate. Our associations influence us enormously until the day when we are no longer influenced by outer condition. But that takes a little while. Until then, everyone is influenced by the people they are with. And often we believe things that other people tell us even though they're totally absurd. Later on, when that person has gone and we think about it again, we think, well, that's absurd. Why would I ever have believed it? And sometimes we don't even come to that conclusion. We are very easily influenced. And this is the reason why the Buddha made so much, put so much emphasis 
on the kind of people that we're with and regarded those as antidotes for our difficulties. Skeptical doubt is a kind of hindrance if it isn't at least minimized, makes it impossible to learn because it also includes the attitude that one knows already. One knows something else, but one knows already. I like the simile very much that the Buddha gave for the four kinds of people that there are. He compared them to clay pots. There are clay pots that have big holes in the bottom. And if you pour water in, it, rinse, it runs right out at the bottom. You pour the Dhamma in one ear and it runs right out the other ear. It doesn't even get as far as the door. And then there are clay pots that have cracks and the water seeps out. You take it as far as the dormitory and then it's gone. The Dhamma. And then there's a clay pot that is full to the top with water. That's the kind of person that knows already too much and has, of course, because nothing new can go in, has doubts about everything because it can't let anything new in, the clay pot that's full to the top. So it's got to doubt the rest of the stuff. Otherwise, it would have to pour the old stuff all out. But then there's also the kind of clay pot that has no holes and has no cracks and is quite empty. And you can pour new water in and fill it with completely new water. Now, I dare say it's too much to hope for that we are completely this last kind. But we could say maybe we can hope for the fact that we're only half full. <laughs> and I think that would do for this meditation course. Fill the other half with new water. To the skeptical doubter, the more the person doubts, the more he's full with all the old water already. Makes life difficult in a way, but particularly difficult to learn something so different from the ordinary, everyday kind of teaching and living. So this initial and sustained application are two factors of meditation which apply to any meditation. They do not have anything special about them, and yet they counteract our two of our uh, hindrances, which make meditation very difficult and also are hindrances in daily life. And then we come to the moment when we can put the key in the keyhole because we've held it in our hand long enough and steady enough and open the door. And as we open the door to this inner mansion and go over the threshold, the thing that arises, I've already explained in uh, this morning, which is called piti, the delightful sensation, has a very strong effect on the psyche. It is an automatic antidote against ill will. Now, everybody suffers from ill will. 
some people more than others. But everybody has it. It's only totally eliminated one step before enlightenment. So obviously everybody's got it. It shows in a different way in, in different people. Some people have enormous ill will against themselves and make themselves terribly unhappy with that. And others have enormous ill will against others and make others terribly unhappy with that. And some people have ill will against both themselves and others and make both very unhappy. And the Buddha compared anger with picking up hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody. The one who gets burned first is obviously the one who picks the hot coals up. And not only that, but if the other person has practiced for some time, they may have learned to duck. So, what are we throwing that stuff around for? It's really pretty um, useless. The antidote for ill will, this automatic antidote, is considered to be during the meditation, obviously. If we are having a very delightful sensation we can't at the same time have ill will that's not possible but there's far more to it than that this experience of the delightful sensation has a residual effect and I have already mentioned that we have at that time found a home for the mind now if you just were to imagine for one moment that working all day at your work in an office or wherever it may be and thinking that you have no home for the body it would be rather stressful and it would be quite anxiety producing but since one has a home for the body one never worries about that now we know we have a home for the mind and all the unpleasantness that can happen during the day when there are things that we hear that we'd rather not hear things that we experience which are unpleasant they do not have the ability to touch us as strongly anymore as before because we know we can go home with the mind inside where there is the light and knowing that protects our inner being from being churned up and reacting with the usual kind of negative response. It is as if there was a cushion that all that is cushioned by. The arrows are caught by a cushion and they don't poke in anymore. They still touch, but they don't poke so much. They only stop touching when the jack-in-the-box is taken out. But yet, at this time, there is this cushioning effect. So the residual effect of the delight is of enormous importance because it is a protection in daily living. And this protection is independent of any outer condition. It's independent of any belief. 
It's independent of anything at all. It's just dependent upon the fact that we sit down and meditate every day. That's all it depends on. And if one has come this far in one's practice, it's not so likely that one is going to stop again, although that too happens. Anything happens with the human mind. This residual effect of pity, of the delightful sensation, is one of its most important factors because it not only counteracts ill will then during the meditation, but it counteracts ill will all day long. And that is its most important function. The Buddha compared ill will, which is its uh, collective name for all negativities, for anger, resistance, rejection, uh, fear, anxiety, um, all the negative emotions, envy and jealousy, it all belongs in there. He compared that to a bilious disease. The bile comes up, and which is actually something people can experience when they get angry. And he said that in daily life, our antidotes are loving-kindness meditation and loving-kindness action. Now, I've already talked about the kind of loving which is possible if we cultivate our heart quality. And I have already mentioned that it's necessary to cultivate that in everyday situations, under everyday conditions, under all conditions. Everybody has sufficient challenges every single day. And it's totally useless to try to escape from them because we can't. The, the escape that we can have, which is isolation or separation, or distraction only works very temporarily. The ill will always catches up with one again. It always catches up because the mind can produce anything and it produces it for the most absurd reasons. It makes up stories. If there's nobody to dislike, it makes up stories that somebody could be there that could be disliked. And then if that is finished, then one gets a new idea how to have something negative going. So the um, escape that one tries to do by avoiding or uh, is isolating oneself is actually uh, just a, a misconception. Such a thing is not possible. The only thing that's possible is, again, the same formula, recognition, no blame, change. And in order to change from the ill will, from the anger, from the dislike, to the positive, we need to start with the smallest matters. We don't have to start with somebody we really hate, although that would be very good if we could change that, but it's not usually possible. So we start with the things that irritate us and change the irritation into acceptance. That is not so difficult because these are minor matters. And when these minor matters have been ironed out, then we can atta tackle the major matters. 
the person that we dislike, the person that hurt us, the situation which was um, unfair to us, and so on. So if we work on this and try to actualize the teaching within us, that is the daily task. And this daily task is so much easier if we have the support system of the meditative factor of the delightful sensation. Obviously, this daily task should be done by anyone whether they have the support factor or not. But if we do get it, it's an enormous help. It's an enormous help on many levels, particularly on that one. As you know, we are engaged in trying to see how we can get to transcendental uh, experience. Well, transcendental experience has to be pure. So the negativities within us will have to be ironed out and eliminated one day. And it's not possible to just say that we want to do it because nothing happens. It's not useful to believe that this is a good thing. We've got to actually start doing it. And with the smallest things. Escaping can also be done by imagining that one actually doesn't care. Now that's the indifference aspect which I have already mentioned and which I will mention again when we come to equanimity in the meditative factors. In reality, everybody cares. This is a myth. It's been dreamt up in the 60s, the flower power. It doesn't work. It's been dreamt about. It's all right, everything's all right, you know. That sort of thing has never worked for anyone. Because if that, what the establishment thinks is not all right, and one doesn't care about that, then one has other ideas what one doesn't like. The mind is the same for everyone. The roots that we have are the same for everyone. We just use them differently. Somebody dislikes rain and another person loves it. But they dislike the sunshine because it's too hot. It's very simple. There's always something. So it is no use trying to imagine that one is quite at ease with everything. The proof is whether the mind actually is joyful and does not go into any negative state on with any trigger. Everybody has plenty of triggers. So this um, work that we need to do to purify our emotions needs the help of the meditation. And when we have opened the door to the inner chambers, we also have the entry or the passport to all the purity and beauty that lies within every human being and that can be experienced and gives us the assurance that we are far more than the senses and the rational mind. That has always been thought about, 
that have always been bandied about and people have called it soul and have called it spirit soul is supposed to be only the nice part of us spirit is supposed to be the nice part of us people give it all sorts of names they think about that it happens after death that one has a certain place uh, reserved for oneself somewhere all these things are hopes every one of them can be realized here and now and then one doesn't have to give it fancy names it's nothing but a meditative pathway the names are just descriptive they are not explicit they're only describing the explanations are actually one's own experience from a practical standpoint as I've said before the opening of the door the delightful sensation can arise with any meditation subject it's totally immaterial method is method by any name whichever method works that's the right one whether it be the breath loving-kindness sweeping casinos uh, color discs anything at all wherever the concentration is best that's the one to use when it comes to the breath and if that is used as a meditation subject the indication is that the breath becomes so fine that one can't find it anymore the initial response to that in the mind is usually oh dear I'm not breathing quickly let me take a deep breath well that of course effectively stops the meditation so one has to start over again if one knows that this is happening one will be um, protected from it the next time and actually keep going and not being able to find the breath means that the delightful sensation is then the meditation subject if one does it through the full sweep wherever it arises that's the moment to go to it as a general statement one needs to learn to stay on it for 10 minutes 10 minutes does not mean looking on one's clock or watch it just means a good chunk of time it's not useful to have it just for a second or to have it just appear and disappear one needs to learn to be able to stay on it because it is again the cause for the next effect and being the cause it has to be fully experienced when the med- when it stops which means that either the concentration has completely lapsed or the time is up there are three things that need to be done before one opens one's eyes the first one is that too is impermanent because obviously it's just dissolving one is right there at the impermanence um, experience now everybody is very happy when their knee pain is impermanent wonderful impermanent something great marvelous but when this marvelous delightful sensation is also impermanent that's the time to become aware of it and not with a superficial um, exclamation to oneself oh yeah I know everything is impermanent not like that at all but knowing it to be impermanent being with that dissolution of it 
as it dissolves, watching it dissolve. That gives the indication of real impermanence. That's the first thing. Second thing is recapitulation. How did I get there? What did I do? What did I actually experience? Did I do anything different? How was my pathway? And the third thing is, what did I learn from this experience? Now the answer may be nothing, all right, and nothing. But it's necessary to inquire. I will give an overview of all the insights which can and eventually will arise out of the absorption experience. But again, that is only information. It becomes only your insight when you have experienced it. So the three questions need to be asked before one opens one's eyes or statements made. That too is impermanent. How did I get there? What was my pathway? What have I learned from it? That will be the experience after every of the meditative absorptions. This only being the first one and also this delightful sensation being the most prominent factor of the five factors. While the first two are necessary for any meditation, the last one is also necessary for any meditation, and the fourth one, which I haven't mentioned yet, is a byproduct. So this particular one, the delightful sensation, is the most prominent factor of the first meditative absorption, the first being the entry. Obviously, we have to enter somehow. And I'm going to repeat this statement which I made this morning already. No, we do not meditate in order to get delightful sensations. But somehow, somewhere, we've got to open the door. And as we open the door into the inner chambers, this is the first thing that happens. And it's the first thing that happens, first of all, because we always have those sensations. Anyone who is adept at that can walk around with them. Easier here than uh, at, on Martin's place, of course, but uh, theoretically anywhere. We've got them. They're there. So that's why that's the first thing we become aware of. It is, of course, also the grossest of all the experiences of the meditative absorption, naturally, because it's the lowest rung of the ladder. And as we go on with this um, course, I will certainly explain the rest of them. This one is particularly important because it opens the door and we have the automatic antidotes for our hindrances. Without these automatic antidotes, it's extremely difficult to make headway with one's defilements. One knows them, one counteracts them, and they keep coming up again. When we have the automatic antidote, there is this cushioning effect. And that cushioning effect is of the greatest importance. It helps. 
I think that's enough about this particular subject. Now, if you have questions, this is the time to ask them. I said the delightful sensation exists within us always. It's just that we can't get at it because we're thinking. The minute one is thinking, one can't experience it. So it is not that it is, uh, it has nothing to do with the past. It's, it's within a human being. It's always there. It's just that most of the time, not only are we thinking, but most of the time our doorway to enter there is covered with so much debris that we can't get in. And the most of the debris is thinking. And some of the debris is old stuff that we haven't carted away yet. Yeah, wait till tomorrow, okay? <laughs> I'll explain the second step in all detail tomorrow. <laughs> you don't, it's not that you forget it so much. I'll explain it. Let's, let's get the first one settled for, properly first. You see, the other thing that's a danger in this also is the achievement syndrome. And I have uh, uh, for many years looked at that. But the lesser of two evils is the explanation. Because at least people can get there. It's uh, the, uh, the, want, the mind then wanting to get something, that is of course a danger. And I'm warning against it all the time. One can't get it when one wants it. It's impossible. One can only get it if one lets go. So there's nothing to want and nothing to get. There's only to let go and be there. And be, be in it completely. Anything else? Well, what you're saying is that when you have the delightful sensation, the thoughts still coming in and out. not finding the right balance yeah finding the right balance of being able to stay with it uh, without making too much uh, uh, effort or not enough effort when you went to what feeling Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> at this point in time in the meditation effort particularly on the second step should no longer be necessary there's no effort needed you see the the thing is that the mind is standing outside of it what you're describing and watching this procedure and and thinking now and then about it but it's not the way the way to do it is to be it not there's nothing to be stand outside be it be the sensation and be the joy Sure. Constantly. Well, as soon as you get a thought, you're the, the, you're the bystander. When you're back in it, that's fine. So when you're in it, how to stay in it and not go back to the thought? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but that has nothing to do with right effort. Um, it's um, it's a bit of a wrong approach. It's got nothing to do with right effort. Right effort comes comes at the time when one hasn't concentrated yet. Initial application and sustained application are the right effort aspects. But once it has been established, there's no effort necessary. One is just there. So the, the difference is, again, the same thing I said earlier, not to be the observer of it, but to be it. And every time you fall off it, fall back into it. It's not, it's not I'm trying. It's got nothing to do with that anymore. It's gone past the stage of I'm trying. The trying and the effort comes in before one gets into it. Once one is there, there has to be the ability to that one is actually it and uh, it's partially due to the, the mind the wrong mind approach to the whole matter it's not the lack of effort there shouldn't be any effort necessary Yeah, but it's neither there, it's neither this nor that. It's neither grabbing it nor being very relaxed with it. It's being it. Just being it, not being not being the observer of it, wanting to have it, not being the observer of it, being relaxed with it. That's the person standing outside of it, looking at it and saying, I'm going to either grab it or I'm going to be relaxed with it. That doesn't work. Can you see the difference between being it and looking at it? Mm. Well, because the thoughts came up, that's why you lost it. Well, well don't, don't, don't think about it. When you eat, you don't have to think about it. Don't even give it a thought. It's just it. That's it. And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
Let gratitude arise in your heart for all the good things that are present in your life. Enumerate them, think of them, become aware. Home and family, job and friends, health, the ability to meditate, let gratitude all the good things in your life fill you, surround you. Think of the person sitting nearest you and fill that person with gratitude for his or her presence in this course and supporting your own practice. Let that person feel your gratitude. Let your gratitude reach out to everyone here. Gratitude for everyone's presence, everyone's support, everyone's interest. Everyone's friendship. Be grateful and fill every person that is here with your gratitude. Think of your parents, fill them with your gratitude 
for everything they've done for you when you were too small to do it yourself. Gratitude for the life they've given you. Give them your gratitude as a gift. Embrace them with it. Think of those who are nearest and dearest to you and fill them with your gratitude for their presence in your life, for their helpfulness, for their caring. Be truly grateful to them. Fill them and embrace them with your gratitude. Think of your friends and fill them with your gratitude that they are your friends, that they are available, that they care for you. Be grateful to them and let them feel it. Think of those people you work with and be grateful for their support, for their kindness, for their attention to you, for all the good things that you can think of. Fill them with your gratitude. Now think of those people who make our lives possible, 
the farmers who grow our food. Let them know about your gratitude to them. And the people who make our clothes, let them know about your gratitude. people in the post offices, the people in the telecommunication system, in the roadworks, all making it possible for us to live more easily. Let them have your gratitude. Think of the people who built your house, who made the windows, who made the furniture. <coughs> Let them know about your gratitude. Fill them with it. Let your gratitude reach out to the earth on which we live and which grows our food and to the trees which help us breathe. And to the animals in the forest. who are companions. Let them all have your gratitude. Let your gratitude reach out to the moon and the stars who look beautiful at night for us.
and to the sun who makes it possible for us to live. And send out your gratitude to the rain and the streams and the creeks without which we couldn't be alive. Feel the togetherness with all the different people who make our lives possible with nature and the elements. And with the gratitude in your heart for all that that surrounds us, that supports us, feel the totality that makes it possible for each one of us to exist. put your attention back on yourself and feel the gratitude within you for who you are, where you are and what you're doing. Feel the joy and contentment that arise out of gratitude. May all beings have gratitude in their hearts.